Would you take your Bible, please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians, remain standing in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Uh, I'll let you sit in a minute. You'll be sitting for a while, so therefore it's good to stand as we read God's Word. Now, uh, you'll see that our subject matter today is, uh, this is part one of how to live in the last days. Already this past week, uh, this past Sunday, we talked a little bit about the second coming. We'll talk more about that subject, but in order to get a feel for where we are in chapter 5 in the first five verses, we really need to back up and to uh, get uh, the, the context of what uh, the Apostle Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica, and then we'll jump into a study of the Scripture. You see the outline if you're uh, <clears throat> going to be looking at your, uh, at your outline. Uh, you'll see that it's three points, and we'll try to move through this quickly. But he here's what I want you to do as you, as you read through this. I like to read through, and I like to look at pronouns. I like to look at structure of sentence those kinds of things, that can tell us a lot about the to whom uh, the author is speaking to. And so I, I'd like you to, to listen. I'll point this out as we go through this passage of Scripture, and it will help us not only today but in the days ahead try to get our arms around um, what exactly the, um, the apostle is saying. So let's back up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. This is what we did last week. I want you to notice the pronouns. When he's speaking to you, he's speaking to Christians. When he's speaking to them or to those, he's speaking to those outside of faith in Christ. Very important as we walk through this. So, beginning in chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be informed, brothers about those who are asleep. We'll come back to explain that in just a few moments. You'll remember he's talking about those in Christ who have passed away, using a very soft term, so that you, believers, may not grieve as others, he goes third person here, others do who have no hope, obviously drawing a contrast between those who believe and those who don't. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, parenthetically that's the gospel, even so through Jesus God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Now that is third person, but obviously talking about those people who have passed away in Christ. For this we declare to you, Christian, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, believers who have passed away. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a shout of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, believers, who are left, will be caught up together with them, the ones who have preceded us, the believers who have died, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, we jump into chapter 5. I want you to note 
in case you're not aware of this, when Paul wrote this, this was a letter. There were no verse or chapter divisions. Some believe this is a brand new thought. If you follow in the context, this continues the thought that Paul started in verse 13 of chapter 4. So when he ends by saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words, he continues the thought by saying, now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you, listen to this, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people, third person, that's those out there, are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, those outside of Christ, just like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they, those outside of Christ, will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 6. So, then let us not sleep as others outside of Christ, but let us keep awake and be sober. Father, these are your words. You gave them to us as the church so that we might be encouraged in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us now as we study these, take them to heart, and learn what we are to do as a result. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. True followers of Christ, I hope that that's everyone here today. We believe that Jesus Christ came to the earth as a baby, grew to become our Savior by dying on the cross, being buried, rising from the dead, and ascending into heaven. Uh, I'm trying to, guys, advance these slides. I don't know if there's a little glitch back there. Uh, the technical term is, term is uh, they have to give me control. And I like being in control, at least this, okay? So we believe all of these things, and we also believe, because the Bible is very clear, that someday, we believe someday soon, Jesus will return in triumph and glory to rescue believers and to punish unbelievers. Did you pick that up from the passage we just read? About that, there is no question. But, in case you didn't realize it, there is huge debate as to how it will happen. So, what do you think? Let me ask you a question. Um, I don't know if I ought to get a show of hands or not. No, you don't have to raise your hand. I just, I just want you to, as you listen to this question, I want you to decide what you are, all right, in terms of your belief about the second coming of Jesus Christ. How many of you are premillennial in your eschatology? Did you even understand what I said? Eschatology, the study of last things. 
So I just asked the question, and, and, and again, there's debate. I just want you to know that. We're going to come back in a minute. We're going to just give a really general overview. But uh, there are some of you who are already locked in. You know that you are premillennial in your eschatology. How many of you are postmillennial? How many of you are ah-millennial? That word basically in the Greek means not. It negates. I'll explain it hopefully in a minute. How many of you are just pan-millennial? You just believe it's all going to pan out in the future. (laughs) When it comes to this subject, there is probably as much confusion over this as any other subject that there is. So let me give you a brief overview of these, and it's going to be brief, and it's general. I do not want to represent any view of of the, the, the doctrine of last things. And by the way, as I walk through this, you are going to see, and I will gladly tell you what my particular view is. Now, I'm not going to take time to read Revelation chapter 20, but just jot that down, because at some point you're going to want to read that. When we say millennium, or we, talking, or we are talking about your millennial view, that's exactly the passage of Scripture that we go to. And there are a lot of things surrounding that, but at the very minimum, read the entire chapter, because that's where the, that's where the, the, the word millennium comes from. And it is a Latin word that means 1,000, 1,000 years. Now, if, if you'll just think back to what I just asked you a minute ago, all of these views that I shared with you, which are the primary, the majority views that are out there today, they have to do with your view of what happens when the Lord comes back in terms of the millennial kingdom, His reign, His rule on earth, unless you are another persuasion, for 1,000 years. So let me give you an overview. Have I confused you thoroughly yet? I hope not. Here, here's the overview, and I think it will help. Let's start with the oldest system of belief, the interpretation generally. And it is, all, all of these are millennial views, okay? We agree about that. It's just about what does that mean, and what does it look like, and what's the timing? That's where we disagree. The oldest view, and this may surprise some of you, is what's called, and by the way, you'll notice that I do not have charts up here. I could have put them. It would have taken a while, and I I just think it would have added to your confusion. So, let me give you the basic views. The oldest that goes back to the days of the apostles, in fact, uh, several of of, of the people who uh, espoused this particular view were disciples of the Apostle John. It goes back into that first century. It's called historical premillennialism. So there are several kinds of premillennial views. This one is called historical pre. That's the way, if you're kind of familiar with the jargon, hey, are you historical pre? Are you this other one, but that's the oldest, okay? And basically, historical premillennialism means that Jesus is coming back before the literal 1,000-year reign. You got that? 
There's a difference, but in another millennial view that I'll get to in a minute. Let's go to the next in terms of the historical outworking of these. It would be the amillennial view. The amillennial view, basically, it doesn't deny the millennium. It just takes a symbolic view of the millennium, all right? The amillennialist would say, basically, we are in the millennium. Jesus is going to come back. The rapture, everything is all right there together, and then we go straight into eternity. That began to come into belief as a system around three or 400 A.D. with the advent of the Roman Catholic Church, and it is held today. It's a very popular view. I could, I could tell you names uh, of people, and you would recognize these names, that all hold to these different views. So you've got historical premillennialism. Then you've got the amillennial view. Then next you have the postmillennial view, which came into vogue at about 1100 A.D. This is the view that before the millennium, things are just going to get better and better because the, the, the preaching of the gospel is going to spread like the leaven. You remember that story, the, the illustration, or like the mustard seed, and it spreads, and then it just sets up the millennium kingdom. Now, the most, and this is interesting. I dare say that many of you don't realize this, but the most popular view today is also the most recent. It really was not popularized until around 1830 by a guy named J.N. Darby. Now, he's the guy that, that he, he, he kind of started th this whole movement as a system, but it really was popularized by a particular Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. Have any of you ever heard of the Schofield? King James, and it, it had the… By the way, let me tell you that on any study Bible or reference Bible, this has caused a lot of confusion ever since this started. The notes that the author, Schofield or Ryrie or MacArthur or any of those people, the notes that they put in there are not inspired. The problem is when, well, look, it says it right here, and it's the interpretation that that particular author has of it that's not inspired. It's only the Word of God part that is inspired. So Schofield popularized this view. It's called, it's also premillennial, it's called the dispensational premillennial view. Now, I'm not going to get any more into it than that. I'm trying to look around and see your eyelids. Make sure I haven't put anybody asleep, okay? But, but here is the, but you say, well, what's the difference between the oldest, the historical premillennial, and the dispensational premillennial view? Here's the basic difference. There are some others, method of interpretation, some of these kinds of things. The basic view is what Christians are going to do about the tribulation, okay? Now, by the way, I'm giving this to you because in the rest of this book and on into 2 Thessalonians is one of the most vivid illustrations of why you probably ought to at least see some validity to a particular view that I've just shared with you. See, the dispensational premillennial view believes that the rapture and we don't know exactly how that's going to look. The rapture will come. We'll take Christians 
out of the world. Seven years will ensue of this incredible tribulation. The Lord will then come back. His second coming, He will come back with believers with Him, and He will judge, and then He will set up the millennial kingdom, a lot of other things. We get into this in Second Thessalonians. At the end of that time, Satan is loosed. He's bound at the beginning. He'll be loosed. And um, the battle will, will, will come, Gog and Magog, and then the eternal rule will happen at that time. So that's dispensational premillennialism that you're, you're not going to go through the tribulation. Historical premillennialism believes that you will. Basically, the rapture, the second coming, happen at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes to usher in the millennial kingdom. Now, let me say something very, very important. Whichever view you hold to should never become a matter of fellowship with other believers. Do all of you believe that Jesus is coming back literally and bodily? Yes, you do. Do all of you believe in some kind of a millennium? You have to because the Bible teaches it in Revelation chapter 20. I, I kind of put this as a parenthesis. Do all of you believe in divine election? Well, of course you do because the Bible teaches it. You just disagree about certain nuances. That's the way it is with your eschatology. And so, whatever I say to you, you, you know that we all believe the basics of the Apostles' Creed. Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We affirm that, don't we? And so we don't argue about the nuances that are really the third-tier kinds of things. We don't break fellowship. If you're a dispensational premillennial and you have a friend in our church who is an amillennial or even a postmillennial, you never break fellowship. Some of the greatest minds in all of history have debated this. Great and godly people disagree, and most Christians are not clear. And that's why when I said pan-millennial a few minutes ago, it's all just going to pan out at the end. Most people would say, yeah, that's where I am. So as we work through the Scriptures, I think it'll be obvious where, where I believe the, the, the things that I hold to personally. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be going through these things. One of the things I hope you see that, that's very obvious from this passage of Scripture is that the Apostle Paul is not trying to lay out a system or give us charts. What he is trying to do is to bring us encouragement. Wow. I'm still not in control. Okay, there. Now, all right, here we go. Could be the batteries. I, I don't know. All right, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Here's what we saw last week. We read about it again. Death has visited families in the church. It's hard they are grieving, and so Paul writes this not to spell out a system, but to give hope and encouragement to believers who are distressed. 
And what does, he, what does he point to? He points to the second coming of Christ to do that. Now, what's interesting, and if you, if you read through these two books written pretty close, closely to each other, you will find that at least six times in 1 Thessalonians and five times in 2 Thessalonians, the second coming of Christ is referred to. Now, going back, if you remember this last week, they're grieving over, over loved ones and people in the church who have died, there's a question. Are they going to be forgotten? Are they going to be left behind when the day of the Lord comes? And so Paul says, no. Well, there was another problem that we're going to mention later on in, in 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter, okay, chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3 just look at it right here. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word, a letter seeming to be from us. Here was the other concern, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come already, so don't let anyone deceive you. We'll see if it's a Battery problem, right? Okay. Ah, it's an antenna problem. Okay, got it fixed, hopefully. So Paul assures them that all of us who believe in the Lord, who love the Lord, are going to be caught up in the air to be with Him forever, and those who are dead already get to go first. What a relief that was. But the obvious next question is, when? And, and that's a question that a lot of Christians would ask. They were probably saying something like this, Paul, we know that we're all going to be with the Lord forever, and that's a wonderful thing. We just want to know when forever starts. Remember, like I said a minute ago, there's no chapter break, no verse break in Paul's letter. And so, when we go back to that previous chapter, chapter 4, we see this thing called the rapture, the snatching up of all believers, get this, from all ages who have ever lived since the time of Christ. The dead come out of their graves then we follow and we meet. I, again, like last week I said, I'm not sure what all that looks like, but there's going to be this incredible reunion. We will meet the Lord in the clouds and the air. And, and we're not really told from this passage of Scripture whether we will go back. That's one particular view. We will go back in the clouds with Him or we will come to earth. Is there a hint of which one? The only other two places in the New Testament where the word meet is used is in Matthew 25, verse 6, talking about the bridegroom. And, and, and we know from that, that story that Jesus told, that parable that Jesus told, that when the bridegroom comes, they will come out to meet him and accompany him back to receive his bride. The only other place is in Acts 28, 15, where Paul is coming into Rome. The Christians in Rome come out to meet him, and they accompany him back. So, in the context of the use of that word, the picture here is that when Christ 
comes again, the dead will be raised, we will meet him in the air and accompany him back to the earth. And it says we will be with the Lord forever. Again, last week, and we just read it a few moments ago, there is no indication that this event will be secret, just the opposite. When I was reading, I tried to, I tried to make this prominent, that there's going to be a loud command, a shout from Jesus. There's going to be the voice of an archangel, probably joined by other angels, and then there's going to be the trumpet of God. The bodies of every righteous saint that has ever lived are going to be coming out of their graves. Folks, this is going to be anything but secret. I, I don't think that that kind of thing could go unnoticed. So with that in mind, let's look at these verses that we have in chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. And here is the, the application coming out of these verses that I am making. We as Christians have everything that we need to know about the day of the Lord. Look at what Paul says. He basically says, you believers, you've got everything you need to know about the when. He is not saying that you and I know all the details of His coming. We just have all the information that we need to know about His coming. Matthew 24, verses 36 and 42 Jesus is talking about that day, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Get this, the Son of God does not know, but the Father only. Therefore, He's speaking to believers about that day that is coming, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, why would Jesus tell believers to stay awake at His coming if they're not there at His coming? So if you'll notice something, I hope you notice that when I read chapter 4 and those verses here that talk about the, the coming of the Lord, and then we talk about the day of the Lord in chapter 5, I am equating the two because Scripture, in context, seems to do the same. If you'll look back in chapter 4, in verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and left until the coming of the Lord. That gives us an indication of where we will be at His coming. Now, I said a few minutes ago, in, in the basic views of, of eschatology, the doctrine of last things, the difference in do you remember it? Dispensational and historical pre-tribulation. Here are some questions that at one time I, I just I began to ask about these things. Is this one event? Or is it two events that equal one? Or is it 
for lack of a better way to say it, one and a half events, the half beginning at the rapture, seven years period of time of tribulation, and then the second coming of Christ. Is it clear from this context that this event is before or after what is called the Great Tribulation? In other words, that part of the second coming separated by seven years, or is the second coming after a time of great tribulation? And as we will see in 2 Thessalonians, the great rebellion or the great falling away, the great apostasy, and the law, the man of lawlessness. Now, there are good reasons and answers, I think, to the questions But like I told you at the very beginning when we were reading through these, I want you to slide your finger down in chapter 5 to verse 4 and observe the pronouns again. Watch this. Because it's very clear. If you take the the pre-trib rapture view and the raptures happen, there are no believers during that time, and then the second coming comes, the day of the Lord. Verse 4 says this, but you are not in darkness, Lord, for that day to surprise you like a thief in the night. It seems to me that in verse 4 it's pretty clear, the pronouns, all the rest of that, that we are here. We're not to be surprised when that day, the day of the Lord comes. Again, I want to say this. I am not giving you charts. I'm not trying to spell out definitively certain nuances about any one of these views. I'm just relaying to you what Paul has already said to them and to us. You have everything you need. He said right there in verse 1. Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware. I'm convinced that today you don't need a chart. You don't need specific dates. You really don't even need specific systems. Now, I think it's good to have a system and to have a a biblical basis for that system. But what your job is, Jesus said to a group of disciples who were asking Him about these things. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven, His disciples were with Him and He had told him, told them about what, what was going to come in the future. And so when they had gathered together, they asked Him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, look, and I'm going to paraphrase. Again, it's not about charts. It's not about certain systems. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. But here is the one thing that I want you to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You and I, even though you may not be settled on your particular eschatological view, you and I have everything we need to fulfill what we need to be about when the Lord comes back. 
You see, if we really believe that he's coming back and, and those who are lost will be judged, we need to be sharing the gospel. We have the only solution for people to be in Christ so that they can join us and meet the Lord in the air and not be destroyed because of unbelief. Verses 2 and 3. Let's move on. The day of the Lord will be sudden, unexpected, and inescapable for… Now, look at the pronoun here for those who are in spiritual darkness. And we get two pictures. Uh, Paul paints two pictures right here. Says that we are fully aware, that means the that. We're fully aware of the that, but we're just not aware of the then. And Jesus said it like this when he was also asked in Matthew 24, but know this, and he uses this illustration that the Apostle Paul picks up on. If the master of the house had known what part of the night, what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Now, here's an interesting thing. When we look at this word picture that Paul is painting for us about the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night, a lot of people say, well, that means that it's going to be silent. Well, not necessarily. Sometimes burglars are silent. Sometimes they try to be quiet. But this is a picture more like a home invasion. You're startled, and then all of a sudden you wake up to a gun in your face. And what the thief uses is the cover of darkness when people have fallen asleep. They have a sense, sometimes it's a false sense of peace and security. And, and notice, that's a bad example, but it's like, it's like that. So, how is the coming of Christ like the thief in the night who is broken into your house, a home invasion? The key is here, he's emphasizing that it is unexpected that it comes suddenly. And that's what he's trying to emphasize. And, and then he goes on. He says in the second picture, sudden destruction will come upon whom? Who's it going to come upon if you look at it? It's going to come upon them, the people who are not believers in Christ. Like labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The picture, again, here is not quiet. And for sure, it's not unexpected. Now, you, you get the picture here. When a woman is pregnant, she knows the baby is coming, all right? It's not an unexpected event. She just doesn't know the when, and neither does the husband. And all of a sudden, whatever happens, happens. She goes into labor and the picture here that Paul is trying to portray for us is that once the labor pains start, there's no going back. The coming of the baby is inescapable. 
And again, Paul uses this word picture to say for whom, okay? This, this is a picture of the coming of the Lord Jesus and, and this, this whole thing about the thief in the night and the labor pains. Who is that for? For people, for them. They will not escape. It's not coming upon you, and there's a reason for it in the next couple of verses. You see, it's coming on a certain group of people. Romans 1 indicates what kind of people? The people that, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They're, they're in the dark. This is a spiritual and, and a moral darkness. Therefore, later on, Paul says in, in this verse, there, in this passage, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. He says the same thing almost to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4. He says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So that's the way it's going to be for those who are outside of Christ. We'll talk about this in the days ahead. There are going to be signs. I believe some of those signs, the birth pangs have already started. There will be very, very obvious signs for those of us who are in Christ. But for them, they're hardened, they're in darkness. And they won't realize it until the time actually comes, suddenly, unexpectedly, without fail, and it will be too late for them. The end will have come. Verses 4 and 5, there's a different view for those of us who are in Christ. Now, look at the wording on your outline because this is what Paul is saying in verses 4 and 5, the day of the Lord is an expected event. It's not unexpected for us. It's an expected event for those of us who are children of the light and children of the day. But you're not in the darkness. Can't wait to come back and talk about this more. This is an identity statement. This is not just talking about darkness like with the lights out. This is you're not in that spiritual darkness anymore. You're not in the lack of spiritual light. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you. Again, the indication is that you will be right here alongside of those unbelieving people who don't get it because they're not in the light. Verse 5, for you are all, again, an identity statement, children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. You know why you're not in the darkness, Christian? Because you're not of the darkness. Because you know Jesus. You are a child of light and you're a child of the day. You are characterized 
by light. This is who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said this to the church at Colossae, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us. Look at this. From the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. These things can be difficult. And yet, I, I think that the Apostle Paul has laid it out for the church in Thessalonica. He's laid it out for Christians today. And the primary message that he is giving to us is, church, you're asking about times and dates. And what you really need to know is that you are in Christ do you know why? Students, do you know why it's important? Older adults, do you know why it's important that you know your identity, that you're in Christ? Because activity will always come out of who you are. Jesus has promised to come back for you. You won't be surprised. So if you're a Christian here today, you can be encouraged by that. By the way, my particular view is, I'm about to tell you, I haven't told you in 15 years what my eschatology is. It would be closer to a historical pre-millennial view for particular reasons, and we might talk about that later. People have said, well, pastor, what if you're wrong? What if the dispensational view? See, I believe that we will be here through tribulation, not wrath. Paul even addresses this later in chapter 5. He has not destined us for wrath. Some of that will be coming in the tribulation. But believers have never been immune from tribulation. So someone asks me, well, pastor, you believe we're going to go through the tribulation? Yes. I believe I'm a dispensationalist. I believe that we're going to be raptured before the tribulation. And so my answer is, if you're right, I'm going to see you on the way up. Guaranteed. So Christian, if you are in Christ, if that's your identity, be encouraged by the words of the Apostle Paul. If you are not a Christian, then be terrified. People say, be terrified of what? Well, a lot of people in their eschatology be terrified of the church being raptured out and you being left behind for the tribulation. It seems to me that Jesus made it a point to say this in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. One last time. Guys, go ahead and just advance that slide or put it on 1028. The thing that we don't need to hear or fear is being left behind and going through experiencing the tribulation. Let me just read it to you. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Because Jesus said it like this. Have no fear of them. 
He's talking to people in general, but believers. He said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So in light of the sermon that you have heard today about the second coming of Christ and your encouragement as Christians, what will you do this week? Encourage yourselves in the Word of God, in the Word of the Lord. And if you really believe what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying, you won't worry about the times and the seasons. You will be about the gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing that gospel with other people. Father, I thank you that you give us your word. I thank you that, um, that you make you make your word clear. And so I pray that in Jesus' name that you would take the words that we have read and that we have worked through and that you would encourage others with these words and help us to be about the business of fulfilling your great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel and people that you have opened their eyes and you have granted them repentance and faith, they will see and they will hear and they will believe. And pray, Lord, that you would pre prepare us for your coming by getting us filled with your Spirit and taking the gospel. I pray that if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus Christ, his or her identity is not in Christ, that you would open that person's eyes they would see their sin before you, a holy God, and they would see that Jesus is the only hope and help, that his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection has brought justification, forgiveness of sins. And I pray today that that person would cry out to you and be eternally saved. Thank you, Lord, for meeting with us today. And again, we pray for those who are traveling back from the camp even right now, Pray that you grant them uh, mercy as they travel. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.